Ahoy, it's your boy. And today is Sunday, December 20th. Oh, I lied. Today is Sunday, December 31st. It's actually kind of cool how this year ended where um, I'm sitting here recording this on the eve of two holidays. Last week it was Christmas Eve, and now it's uh, New Year's Eve. And, um, you know, if you, you know, wait with bated breath for uh, me to send this out, then you'll be getting this on New Year's Day, which is very cool. Um, as I'm starting to talk, I'm realizing that I woke up today and my mouth has been really dry and um, I don't know, I hope I'm not getting sick, but um, I'm also feeling a little mucusy right now as I'm talking. So um, yeah, I could be uh, under the weather as it might be, although now would be the time to do it. Um, uh, I also admit that I feel a little insecure sitting down because actually for the last two weeks, I really haven't had to fill much time. So I feel out of practice. Uh, if you've listened to the last two episodes, you've heard me read my honors thesis in its entirety, and uh, I don't know if that was entertaining for you or not, but that was really just uh, a sort of a, oh, I don't know, documentation or keeping that for posterity for myself, I think. But, you know, hopefully it also demonstrates something about how I've spent my time academically, at least this semester. You know, it's funny, an honors thesis is kind of supposed to be I don't know, a kind of summary academic, academic statement. And I know it's not supposed to really encapsulate everything that you studied, but it's bizarre that, on the one hand, it's the longest thing I've ever written for school. I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of I've written anything longer. I mean, I've written a couple short stories in my life, but um, I don't think I've ever written anything that long. Um, and yet, I feel like, you know, a month or two into the semester, I feel like I had barely started it. So, in a way, as I was reading it and kind of reviewing it, it was just, uh, I don't know, I was proud of myself, which is kind of a, I don't want to say it's a rare thing that sounds sad, but in a way, that's kind of true. I, I felt kind of proud that I had put something together, which, um, you know, you may have your own feelings about it if you listen to it, but, um, you know, would I die? How do I say this? Um, I realize that it's a serviceable piece of academic writing. I don't think it's perfect. I think there's some maybe some stylistic problems with it. I think it's a little overwritten. And uh, it's kind of bizarre, actually, to do... I, one of the reasons that I'm hesitant about academia in general, especially the humanities, um, is it's really hard for me, anyway, to kind of, I don't know, maybe develop a hypothesis or, or maybe develop a, a, a... You know, try to argue a point. Because at the end of the day, you could kind of take this stuff and run in any direction that you wanted with it. So it's kind of difficult to be stating a point, you know, trying to mount a case for an argument when in some ways you're kind of aware of its vulnerabilities. And, um, you know, uh, maybe in some ways, as, as I'm saying this, I'm sort of recalling that, you know, we've talked about in other recent episodes that, you know, it's hard for me to kind of take a hard line on a lot of the world events or topical issues that are happening in the world today, because I always feel like both sides have their point. And maybe there's a way in which this is kind of related to that. Um, and so I don't want to be reductionistic and say, well, the people who are just successful, they're sort of calculating in that way where they just sort of pick a, you know, pick a team and run with it, um, you know, regardless of what they believe. I, I do think some people who one, academically, but also, I think, in our, the sort of public arena of discourse around whether it's politics or world news. You know, I'd like to think that most people defend the position that they believe in. But I think you and I both know that oftentimes people just kind of take the temperature 
of the zeitgeist. They kind of see a niche that they can kind of fall into and exploit. And we know that they don't believe half of what they're saying. I mean, they're, they're really kind of uh, politicians in that sense. Um, which, by the way, if you want to, I mean, if you want to think about how calculating politicians are, um, you know, take a political, political science class. You know, it's really, uh, it's, you sound like a stone college student when you say this stuff, but it's really just all about getting uh, reelected and all that stuff. Um, but anyway, what the hell am I talking about? Um, and yeah, how have I been spending my time recently? I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been done with school for a number of weeks. I probably said as much, but we hadn't really talked about it. Is I had my four wisdom teeth pulled and never had that done when I was a kid. And in a way, having them was sort of a badge of honor for me for a long time. Just because it was uh, symbolic of, I think, you know, maybe what I've experienced in other areas of my life, although I'm hard-pressed to articulate them now. But I remember being, you know, when I was living in Tucson, I mean, I remember being like maybe 15 years old and going to the dentist that I had, you know, I had gone to for the last five or six years. And I remember him telling me, oh, your wisdom teeth are coming in. And I was like, okay. And he was like, let's go ahead and get that scheduled. Let's let's get that scheduled for those who get taken out. And I was like, nah. And actually, now that I think about it, it's kind of bizarre that I had that power, right? Like, what, what, like shouldn't my parents sort of make that decision? But I remember saying, eh, I'll think about it or something like that. And he sort of laughed and said, okay, well, you're going to be begging me to take those out in a couple of months. And I was like, okay. And lo and behold, you know, 20 years goes by and uh, never a problem. Now, I should qualify that. I mean, every once in a while, like maybe every, maybe once a year, maybe every two years, I don't know. I would have like a week or two of tenderness. And I think that's like when they're kind of coming in. And I, and I knew what they were, but it was not excruciating. And I know some people have, I think they're called, are they impacted? Is that what wisdom teeth are? Some people have real complications, which probably are more painful. But for someone like me who they were just kind of coming in, I think the only thing that really would have been adverse um, would be like maybe like making my teeth crooked or something like that, right? As they grow in, they sort of crowd your mouth. And if you've had braces and a retainer like I did, um, I think it, you know, can undo some of that work. But the real problem for me, and I, I don't know why I feel uh, vulnerable saying this, uh, it's because they were like riddled with cavities. Now, it's, you know, my, my argument would be, well, they're kind of subsumed in the gums and they're far back there and they're hard to get to. Um, and that's probably partly true, but it, you know, who knows, maybe it's just bad oral hygiene or something like that. But finally, when I, I mean, I didn't go to the dentist for like five years. And so I guess that's part of it. But, um, when I finally went back to the dentist, he was like, oh yeah, you, you should get those pulled. And I was like, nah, I'm good. And he says, no, you really should not because there's anything intrinsically wrong with having wisdom teeth, but you know, yours have cavities and one, they're only going to deteriorate. Um, and also having cavity in one tooth is a threat to other teeth. So that cavity can spread. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I definitely don't want all my teeth taken out. So uh, I admit I put it off for maybe like, I don't know, a year and a half, two years. I just felt like every time I went in there, the dentist was like, yeah, those wisdom teeth. And I was like, yeah. And the worst part was the first day I went in there, the first session I had with him, he gave me a referral, which I dutifully put on my refrigerator and forgot about. And... uh and uh, yeah, every time I was like, uh, he's like, do you want another referral? And I was like, nah, I got the same one just on the fridge. I just never followed up with it. And, uh, you know, part of that was, you know, when is a good time to do it? Um, either I had, 
I mean, one, I was in school, so um, not really a good time to do that. And then admittedly, right, for the last two summers, I've been uh, gone. And I also admit that I, I mean, when I, my only frame of reference for having wisdom teeth pulled was my sister. And maybe the technology has advanced far along, or maybe there were complications with my sister that I'm just not aware of. But I remember her being like really put out by it. I mean, it was like a week in bed, if I remember correctly. And I remember her like kind of having her head wrapped in gauze. Now, maybe as I think about that, maybe that was about uh, uh, holding ice packs to her cheeks or something like that. I don't really remember. But uh, yeah, I guess I just sort of assumed that it was like a week of really being out of commission and really in pain. And um, it also brought up a challenge, which I just sort of faced, not the first time I faced it, but like kind of being alone out here in California and living alone and not really having anyone to take care of me, which is I sort of assumed that you would have to be knocked out. And uh, if you do that, I mean, years ago, and this is a whole other story, and who knows, as far as I know, I've already told it to you. <laughs> That's kind of how things happen here. I, I sort of tell you things and I think that they're new. And then I, um, you know, I sort of remember halfway through the story that I probably told at least once, maybe twice or three times or a dozen times. But when I was in my early 20s, I had a colonoscopy. And I remember when I had it done, I had to have a, a, a friend's boyfriend like drive me there. Because when they give you that, I don't know what to call it. I, I always call it like that, that sort of twilight. Uh, if you've ever had a colonoscopy, you know what I'm talking about. They don't put you to sleep, but they give you this kind of gas that, you know, you're just in this kind of twilight stage, that sort of liminal space, like when you're falling asleep, you're half asleep, half awake, like right when you're going to bed, and everything's just kind of dreamy, you know? And so you're you're kind of awake, and you have flashes of memory, but, you know, you might as well be kind of blacked out, as it were. But they wouldn't let you drive home after the procedure. You as a liability thing, you, and, and I, I'm not sure if ride chairs were even a thing when I had this done, but, uh, you literally could not be discharged without having someone to drive you home. And so I felt bad at the time, but not having any other people, I had to reach out to, you know, a friend of mine and, and their partner was willing to do it. So I'm always grateful for that. And, um, I feel like years later I bumped into that guy at a bar after, uh, my friend and him had separated. And, uh, I, I brought that up. You know, I I think we were like having a beer and I just said, you know, you, you know, because we didn't really stay in touch after that. Um, and I said, you know what, I've always thought about that. And I always felt kind of bad because we didn't know each other and you did me a good favor. And uh, yet I've always remembered that that was that was really kind of you to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought I was kind of setting myself up for something like that with getting my wisdom teeth pulled. And uh, I was actually surprised that uh, when I went uh, for the consultation they were like, do you want to be put to sleep? And I was like, mm, not if I can avoid it. And they were like, okay. So when I had it done, I basically just had the local anesthesia and nothing else. Um, one, it's cheaper that way. But also, you know, I, I based on my questions, they said, yeah, if you don't get knocked out, you basically just get up out of the chair and go home. And I was like, phenomenal. So that's what I was set up for. And I think, well, I'll just sort of say, when I finally went in for the procedure, um, the woman who was checking me in, she sort of asks me, uh, do you want laughing gas? And I was like, uh, sure. And, uh, I think as the total sort of, based on what they were quoting me uh, with my insurance, which was actually much cheaper than I expected. It was just like a few hundred bucks, which is not free, but it's also not, I mean, I, you know, maybe people don't like to hear this, but I, I'm, I'm convinced on some level that, uh, dentists and oral surgeons, I feel it's kind of a racket type of 
medical practice. Now, I shouldn't sound so, uh, what's the word? Uh, I don't know, maybe judgmental after having just had what will, as I sort of tell the story, will be a phenomenal experience. But I've always just been skeptical. You know, they're always looking to make a buck or something like that. I don't know. I just feel like on the order of medical professions, it's it's sort of between plastic surgeon and like real doctor, if you know what I'm saying. Now, it's a good living, and I'm sure some people love their work. But uh, I, I don't know. I've just never met a dentist that I've ever worked with that I ever felt was like truly happy in their practice. And that also goes for this uh, oral surgeon who just pulled my wisdom teeth. It was not, well, I'll, I'll sort of get there eventually if I do. But um, they were like, do you want laughing gas? And I was like, sure. And I think when she finally billed me, it was like $100 more. And uh, when I actually go into the office, though, and they're kind of getting me ready, I admit when I was, I was not really nervous beforehand. I mean, I had some normal apprehension, I think, just because I, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. But as I was actually in the chair, I started feeling like pretty nervous. And they put the sort of nose thing on me where they were going to administer the laughing gas. And the nurse was like, I'm going to turn this on for a little bit. And it'll just be on like kind of a a low, we'll, 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 we'll put it on a very low setting. And then when the doctor comes in, we'll really crank it up so that you feel it. And I was like, okay. So I sort of, they kind of numb me up and they're kind of letting me sit there. And then uh, you, I ended up sitting there for like 10 minutes or something like this sort of uh, local anesthetic is sort of taking hold. And I could not feel shit and I could barely speak. Um, but when they come in and they're like, all right, we're going to crank this up. And they gave me this kind of word of caution where they're like, well, now... You know, for some people, they feel a little funny. They feel like they've had a couple of drinks. You know, you you know things might start to be funny for you or whatever. They were just kind of giving me these words of caution or whatever. And it was actually at that point, and I think some of this has been based on the fact that, like, you know, I've been sober for I don't even know how many years now, maybe five or six or something like that. But I admit, I didn't really want to get my brain spun that way. You know, I really didn't want, like, a narcotic experience. And so I just asked her in my, uh, you know, my, my, my tongue is basically hanging in my mouth like a dead fish or something. But I basically asked, can we not do the laughing gas? And she was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I, if as I'm pretty numbed up here, as long as you're confident, I'm not going to feel anything. I'd rather just kind of be awake for the whole procedure. And she was like, okay. And it was actually very kind of them. They actually refunded me the money, which I hadn't anticipated. I, I thought this was kind of a game time decision. Uh, but they did. And, you know, if you've been awake for your teeth getting pulled, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I would suspect that most people probably get knocked out for it. And this may sound obvious, but, you know, I sort of thought that, I don't know, I sort of went into the procedure thinking, like, I don't know, he would, like, cut my gums and, like, you know, I know that we say pull my teeth out, but I I don't know why. I just thought they would kind of, like, come out. And really the recovery was probably based on some incision that was made or something like that. And it was made very apparent to me very quickly by what was happening that, no, they literally just yank the teeth out of your mouth. And, you know, it's not like, well, I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't happen as easy as it does in the movies. I mean, it, you know, but he basically goes in there with pliers and the amount of pressure and pulling. Now, I'm not feeling any pain, but the amount of pressure and pulling that I feel was actually like um, arresting. I was, you know, because I'm awake for this whole thing and I'm just really like, oh my God. It was kind of surreal because it was like being in a mob movie where I was like, you know, despite my nervousness, 
I just had this wave of like gratefulness, which is as bizarre and surreal as this experience kind of is in this moment. I was just so grateful that I didn't, I wasn't born a hundred years ago where they basically would have just given me some whiskey and uh, had, uh, instead of the four nurses like handing him gauze, they would be basically holding me down and just pulling these teeth out of my mouth. So, you know, it's hard to complain. Um, the only criticism I have is as soon as they were done and I'm all numbed up and they have my mouth packed with gauze and I can just feel it like saturating with blood is they hand me uh, a pres three prescriptions and they're like, all right, well, you should go get these filled. And I was just like, you mean I got to go to the fucking pharmacy right now? Because this was never broached. In hindsight, I'm like, they should have just given me these prescriptions beforehand so that I could just have them ready at home so I can just go straight home after this. But right after the procedure, I had to go to the pharmacy. And I'm just like, you know, I happen to have a medical, um, how do I say it? My, my insurance provider, my, my um, why can't I speak? My, not my mental health, physical health, medical help. I don't know. I, don't, I can't speak. Don't worry about me. I'm, I'm, my brain's fried at the end of the year. My medical care, that's what I'm going for. My medical care is taking, it's this sort of medical complex where it's like part hospital, part doctor's office, part pharmacy, part everything you could ever need. Um, it's sort of an all-in-one um, shop for your uh, medical care. Um, and I'm just sort of sitting in the waiting room and uh, there's this poor, this kid, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not as swollen as I will be, but I'm a little bit swollen. And I'm just like, you know, I have my cheeks packed with gauze and they're saturating with blood. And I just, you know, you're fucked up when like you see a kid look at you, you know, like, nope, I think other people probably gather like, well, first of all, when I go up to the counter and she's like uh, ID or medical card or whatever, and I basically just hand it and she starts asking me specific questions that I know are answered on the card. And so I just point to the card and I can tell she gives me kind of a quizzical look. And in my muffled, you know, my cheeks are packed with gauze. I can't, feel my lips or my mouth anyway, I just tell her like, oh, I just went to the dentist. Or I said, oh, I can't talk. I think I said, I can't talk. And she said, oh, it sounds like someone just came from the dentist. And I was like, yep. And, uh, but otherwise everyone else I think can kind of suss out what's going on. And they're like, nobody's really looking at me. I don't know if they're being polite or well, who knows, maybe I'm just not the center of the world. Um, but this kid who was just like kind of sitting across from me, was just staring at me the entire time. And I'm sure he was just thinking, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Like he's never seen anything like this before. But here's this guy with fat cheeks and I basically have a paper towel because my mouth is pulling with blood. I'm like sopping blood you know, from my lips and my teeth because I just can't feel it, you know? And um, it was actually very bizarre because I'm so numbed up. At one point I kind of reach up and touch my lip and I thought, oh, no, the gauze is sticking out of my mouth because what I feel is just this, I don't even know what to call it, but it just felt absolutely bizarre. And I had to touch it like 10 times to realize, oh, that's my lip. It just felt like this thing. It was just very defamiliarizing and very fucking strange. But all that being said, they sent me home with like some hydrocodone, which I've never taken any type of pain pill before ever. Uh, other than like ibuprofen and that sort of stuff. I've never taken like Vicodins or Oxycontin or anything like that. So I admit I was a little, again, as the guy who didn't want to have laughing gas, I felt a little bit strange about that. And they sent me home with some mouthwash and um, something else. Oh, antibiotic. And the 
you know, the, the, the numbing that they gave me ended up lasting, I mean, well into the early evening of that same day. I mean, I didn't feel anything in my mouth. It was actually, I was, you know, you're on this, they sort of send you home on this soft food diet. And I felt like a kid. I was like eating mashed potatoes and I just like couldn't chew. I just felt like this invalid. And I had to like wipe, you know, cause I just had mashed potatoes all over my face. Cause I have no, none of that, um, uh, you know, sort of minutia, muscular control that you have when you're, when you're in full control of your faculties, you know what I mean? And uh, I admit, though, by the end of the day, I kind of looked in the mirror and I really wasn't swollen. And I, I mean, I was like putting ice on my face and I thought, oh, wow, I really dodged that bullet. And I woke up. There's a little bit of blood on my pillow. And uh, uh, but I look in the mirror and I'm like a little more swollen. And I was like, ah, God damn it. And then the next day I was a little more swollen and I was like, ah, God damn it. But after that, that was kind of like peak swollenness after a couple of days. But after that, I mean, really no pain. I, I was very, I mean, other than the swollen and the sort of my uh, vanity was a little bit wounded, I really had no pain. And uh, um, there were times in the in the late evening, like right as I was going to bed or I was like watching a movie or something, I would begin to feel this, I don't know, you, sometimes you try to anticipate what certain pains will feel like. And maybe it was partly predicated on my not really understanding what the procedure actually was, which was getting teeth pulled out of my head. But I just would feel this very I don't know, kind of a bizarre, like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another word other than soreness, but just, a, I don't know, it was a type of soreness that I just never would have anticipated in my mind of like what it would feel like. And so sometimes at night I would take one of those hydrocodone, but, uh, you know, never felt any, I mean, I know pain pills hit people differently, I suppose. But again, as someone who, you know, sounds dramatic to say I have a history of addiction, but you know, who drank habitually and smoked weed habitually and was addicted to nicotine for a long time. Um, it felt, yeah, I guess I was kind of wor worried that I would have some kind of, you know, response or or I would take, I mean, sometimes you hear about people taking a drug and I've heard this with things like Oxycontin or whatever, but they take it and all of a sudden they have this just euphoric feeling of, oh, this is what I've been looking for, you know, and the rest of their you know, the, 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 the rest of the spiral of addiction is chasing that first high type of thing. Uh, so, I mean, I had no pain, which means that the pills were working, but I had absolutely no narcotic effect, which, um, you know, a relief and a disappointment, I suppose. Um, but yeah, now I'm fully back to normal. Um, I'm kind of taking it easy with what I eat. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of off the strictly soft food, but I'm still kind of feeling kind of cautious. And the only thing I have to do for the next couple of weeks is just, you know, make sure that the the gaping wound in my mouth is uh, clean and then I'm not getting food stuck in there. I had to like spray it out with this little syringe spray thing that they gave me. But uh, otherwise, smooth sailing. Um, yeah, it's actually kind of weird actually sitting here and telling the story. It almost feels like it happens, happened a lifetime ago and it was really just like, you know, barely two weeks or something like that. But yeah, other than that, uh, since graduation, not that I had a, a formal graduation, but I mean, since the semester ending, um, I really, I don't know if I probably mentioned that I was doing this TEFL certification, teaching English as a foreign language. And uh, I'm, I'm like skating through this thing. Uh, I'm over halfway done. And, uh, you know, it's not the most engaging modality of instruction I've ever had. A lot of it is just sort of like uh, when you take this 
Well, I'm sure we've all had things like the online sexual harassment training or something like that. And it's these sort of, uh, you know, part video, part red material, and they usually have these interstitial quizzes that you take. And usually the quizzes when you do this type of teaching is like, I mean, essentially most people just like, although maybe uh, like if it's at work or whether it's for school, you may have like paid time to do the training and you'll sort of get two hours of, you know, it's supposed to take two hours or whatever, but if you really just kind of click through and guess on the quizzes, you'll probably do fine and it may take you 45 minutes or something like that. Um, this is not like that. It's like the quizzes are substantial. Um, you know, it's essentially open notes. So, I mean, how hard can it actually be, right? Um, but you know, if you haven't read the material, if you don't understand the material, you're not going to do well. And then what was also surprising is you actually have homework assignments. You know, they sort of bill it as like being, you know, something that you can complete at your own speed. But you, at the end of every chapter, you have these substantial, uh, semi-substantial, I'll put it that way. You have these semi-substantial homework assignments that you actually can only move so far in the program until, you know, the past assignments are, uh, assignments are graded. So I admit, I, I've, I've actually felt a little inhibited by it. Um, I'm actually not going as fast as I'd like. I'm still going pretty fast, but not as fast as I'd like. But um, yeah, it's nice to be making progress on that. And then otherwise, I feel like I've just been, well, watching a lot of movies, which we'll, I'll probably talk a lot about, but just kind of running around and trying to get things prepared for my time in Taiwan. But also, not sure if I've talked about it here. I've talked about it with other people. But I'm pretty, pretty, pretty uh, determined that... Um, you know, uh, although I'll be spending the spring in Taiwan, I was not uh, stoked about looking toward the fall and not going to grad school. I mean, originally, uh, when I returned from Taiwan, the plan was like to apply to Fulbright and, um, you know, maybe even go to graduate school in Taiwan. But once I really realized that I had to kind of recalibrate and really think about what I wanted to do, I just sort of decided to let this application cycle pass. Excuse me. And... um. You know, I'm glad that that happened because it, it sort of sent me on kind of a searching journey to find other things. And I think I found a lot of other things that actually I'd be a lot more happier doing. And one of them was doing an English taught Chinese philosophy master's program in China. And uh, initially I looked at this university called East China Normal University. Um, and uh, the reason I sort of looked at them a little bit longer is I had sent out some exploratory emails to different departments and uh, one of the instructors, uh, the professors, got back to me and was very generous with their time and was willing to meet with me over Skype. And uh, yeah, I had a good impression of them. However, as I looked more, I was basically given like a repository of their recorded lectures. And I was just kind of less thrilled about the program after I was sort of sitting in on the lectures. And, uh, and also after asking some questions, I kind of landed on uh, Fudan University, which is, uh, one, it's a better school. It's a higher rank school in China. I think it's like in the top 10. Um, and also just kind of asking around. I had a teacher this semester at Berkeley who uh, was a po is in a postdoc position, but she was incredible. I mean, super smart. Um, for as young as she is, and I don't know how old she actually is. She's probably in her early 30s. But it's it was actually incredible how well-read she was. And um, she just had such a command of the subject and uh just seemed like smart beyond her years just so um but uh she's chinese she's from china she did her undergraduate uh, degree at fudan and so i was basically kind of talking to her and saying well i'm looking at a couple english taught programs i kind of named the ones i was looking at and she was very emphatic well if it's 
between those, I mean, there's just no doubt that you go to Fudan. It's the best university. She happened to know somebody who did the English taught master's program in Chinese philosophy who happened to like it. And she just cautioned that, um, you know, the English taught programs in China, they can often be, you know, depending on where you go, they can be not very well managed. They're kind of an afterthought. Um, and so if you really want to get the most out of your time, one, brush up on your Chinese, and I'm glad I'll be doing that in Taiwan in the spring. But also, as much as you can, ingratiate yourself, uh, not just with the English-taught students, but make sure that you're hanging out with the, uh, you know, the Chinese-taught Chinese philosophy majors and that you're spending time with those professors um, and that you're not just getting siloed with the other international students. Um because that's kind of where the real work is getting done. Not that you can't get a good education there, but it's just, in a way, it kind of reminded me of, you know, before I went to Berkeley, I was cautioned by a mentor in my life, which is the, who had formerly gone to Stanford and then transferred to Berkeley in the middle of their undergraduate career, had said, you know, Stanford is a well-regarded school, but they kind of hold your hand. And, and she had felt that although she got a better education at Berkeley, because it's such a big bureaucracy, you really kind of have to um, know what you want and kind of advocate for yourself. And so that was kind of advice that I drew on during my time at Berkeley, which is you're just a number, you know, they really don't care what you do or what you accomplish while you're there, but they have a million resources that if you just kind of are proactive and look for them, um, yeah, there's just a lot that you can avail yourself of. And so that's kind of the mentality I'm taking to this. And so that's kind of my plan. I'm applying to the English taught master's the English taught Chinese philosophy master's program at Fudan University for the fall. And so, you know, I've experienced this a little bit with Taiwan, but it's especially true of China, which is their process is just very different than what you encounter in a lot of application processes here in the States. I mean, some of it is the same, like we need your transcripts, we need letters of recommendation, but they also ask for a lot of weird things. Like they need all your siblings and, uh, um, you know, I actually had to go to the, um, this actually leads me to something else I've been dealing with the last couple of days. I don't know what's going on, but I got some hot chick energy or something right now, because as I've been running around doing these little tasks, trying to get these things together, I've had, I have people giving me things for free with like a little nudge and a wink. You know what I mean? Like I had to get, uh, two passport sized photos. I don't have any extras. So I basically just went and got passport photos taken and got, you know, four, four copies or whatever. But when I go to the thing, the girl takes my photo and uh, and as she's sort of printing my, I go, how many of those do I get? She's like, oh, you get two. And I was like, oh, is there any way I can get four? And she was like, sure. And uh, she turns to me and she says, you know what? I just gave you the the second two free because it would have been cheaper if you had told me before, but no matter. And I was just like, oh, wow, you really blessed me. Thank you. And, uh, you know, it was just a nice thing to do. And then the next day, I'm sort of at home thinking about how I can spend my time because otherwise I'll just be sitting here twiddling my thumbs. One of the things that I have to have for the uh, uh, graduate application is I have to provide them with proof of a non-criminal record. So I had to go to the police department and I just sort of walked there. It's about a 30-minute walk from my house and ask them for that. And uh, as uh, the very kind woman behind the counter is doing that, she's sort of preparing it. And maybe it's partly predicated on the fact that she probably saw my record and that I was not a criminal. So she's probably more inclined to do nice things for me. But uh, as I go up to get it, I see that it's signed. And I just say, oh, I'm sorry. Is there any type of like stamp or anything like that? And she was like, oh, well, I can uh, notarize it for you for like, 
I forget what it was. I don't know if it was five or 15 bucks. I can't remember. And I was like, let's just do that to be safe. And uh, so she sort of turns her back. She sort of does her thing. And as she sort of turns around, she just sort of gives me like a nudge and a wink like it's on the house. And I was just like, oh, thank you. And I was like, this, is must, this must be what it's like to be a hot chick. Like everywhere you go, people are doing you nice favors, you know? But here's the deal. I'm sort of joking about that. I mean, it's nice to feel like you have some hot chick energy. It was definitely good for my self-esteem. But the point is, is that it's so much easier in life to just be like a nice person. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying I walk around like uh, uh, the neighbor from The Simpsons where I'm like, hi ho neighbor. I'm not that type of person. But if you just go through your life and you're just generally polite to people and, you know, even a little bit, you're kind of waiting in line. You just ask, hey, how was your holiday? Or, hey, happy new year or something like that. People kind of sense that you're a good person and they're just more apt to do nice things for you. Now, if that sounds like advice from Captain Obvious, maybe it is. But I'm just saying I've seen it play out in my life and... Uh, you know, actually, what, what did I see recently? I'll have to just sort of tell you, and then if I can place it, I'll tell you where I... I don't want to steal someone else's idea. I saw something. For all I know, it could have been a stupid meme or something like that. But I thought it, was, it, it has stuck with me. I've actually thought about it. Which is everybody kind of goes through the world, and they talk... You know, everybody talks about wanting to, like, change the world, you know? Or sometimes we grow up with this fantasy of, like, saving the world, where, like, people want to be the president, or... Uh, I don't want to shit on Greta Thunberg, but it's like, you know, people kind of deputize themselves to like save the world, right? They want to make a lasting impact. Well, obviously that's not po possible most of the time. But what you can do is you actually can make a change in the life of somebody else. So so dig this. I, I, I probably alluded to this on some level as well, but we're all the star of our own movie, right? We're all the protagonist of the film that we're the star of. We're the main protagonist. The, the story revolves around us. Even the events in the Middle East or the pandemic, you know, we are the thing that those events organize around in our conception. So essentially that is our world, right? So you can't change the world in general, but you can change or even save somebody else's world. And that's kind of the impact that I think, uh, I don't want anyone to... You know, if you have ambitions to save the world, then by all means, don't let me tell you to to give that up. But for most of us, that's actually a pretty doable goal. And, you know, maybe this sounds like, again, like a stoned college student. But if we all did that, that actually would change the world. If we all just kind of shifted our focus instead of rattling sabers or, um, you know, I don't know, fighting on social media about shit that we actually have no fucking control over. If we all just sort of turned to the people around us and just, you know, were a little bit nicer that is actually like would that would be the the world changing event that we're all kind of waiting for, you know. We're all waiting for this consciousness raising moment where we just sort of see the stupidity of humanity in mass and just sort of like collectively have an aha moment where we stop fighting or something like that. Well, that's never going to happen. But on some level, if we all kind of turned to the worlds that we live in or the people around us and just you know tried to make each other as happy as possible. You know that would be the that would be the consciousness raising moment that we're all waiting for. Anyway, um, what was I talking about? Hot chick energy? I don't even know. Yeah, just be nice. In a way, it kind of took me actually. Yeah, it kind of took me back to this place. Maybe part of it is is the fact that I was kind of walking around and having these nice encounters with people because. 
when I when I went to get my passport photos taken, I walked, you know, Berkeley is small. So in about 30 minutes, you're on the other side of town. But yeah, I walked across town to go to the CVS to get my passport photo taken. And then uh, to go to the police station, I walked in another compass direction about 30 minutes and uh, got my proof of non-criminal record or whatever it was. But it sort of took me back to this period when I was like, mm, probably 30. I think I just turned 30. And admittedly, I was you know, like smoking a lot of weed and all that sort of stuff. But I would basically, this is when I was just doing music. I, I didn't have a job. And I would set out every day and just kind of go for these super long walks and just in any direction, just like wherever it took me. And it was really how I got to like really feel like a part of the community that I live in. Because I would go to a coffee shop, whether or not I drink coffee, or maybe I'd get like a scone or something. But I would start talking with people or I would... You know, it sounds it sounds nuts. Maybe I've talked about this before. But I did have this kind of... I, I, I've always kind of lived my life like never really thinking like people wanted to hear from me or like it felt presumptuous. Like I, I just wasn't the type of person who would like look people in the eye on the sidewalk and say hello to them. Um, you know, I was just kind of reserved for lack of a better word. I mean, there, there's a lot deeper we could go, but I don't want to necessarily get... Um, mired in that sort of stuff. But the point is, is that I was very kind of shy, for lack of a better word. Uh, I was outgoing in my own ways, but in, in other ways, I was very shy. And I really feel, and it's hard for me to articulate as I'm saying this, but I had this kind of transformative thing that happened where I stepped outside of my place one day, and I don't know why it was there. I've never had, well, actually, I take that back. I think it was, a. It, well, basically what I saw was a tennis ball. I step outside my front door and there's a tennis ball right at my feet. And it must have been from, I did have someone who had like a tiny dog for a while. It must have been the dog's toy or something like that. But I remember taking taking the tennis ball. And as I was walking, I would just start bouncing it. And I did this for, I don't know, until I lost the tennis ball. But I mean, it was a not insignificant amount of time. I would walk to work every day. Um, you know, which was like a, I think like a 40 minute walk or something like that. But I would walk to and from work every day. I would have this tennis ball. I would bounce it. I would walk around the neighborhood. I would have this tennis ball. I would bounce it. And as I'm saying that, I don't know why, but that, that was something that kind of, oh, here's what it was. Because I was also a type of person where I didn't draw attention to myself. You know what I mean? Like I always hated, like if you're walking down the street and someone's like singing or something like that, I just, I always judge that person. I think no one, no one gives a fuck what's going on with you. Like, why are you trying to draw attention to yourself? That's like the operating mentality that I have all the time. And so there was something about this bouncing this tennis ball, which is I, one, it was kind of weird. Why am I doing this? But it also seemed like the type of thing that if I saw somebody else doing it, I would judge them for it as if they were trying to draw attention to themselves because who the fuck walks across town bouncing a tennis ball? And yet I was really enjoying it. And so it was this thing that I did where I had to consciously decide this is something that, you know, if I saw myself doing this, I would judge me and I would think I was, you know, kind of lame for, for doing this. And yet I had to acknowledge at the same time that I enjoyed it. And so I was actually going to decide to do the thing that I wanted and that I enjoyed knowing that there could be any number of people that I'm passing, whether they're in cars or walking by me who may see me doing it and have a negative thought about me. And I'm going to tolerate that because it was like an exercise and letting myself do the thing that I wanted to do. Because even though, you know, I have a lot of self-congratulatory thoughts about myself, but on some level, 
you know, you're kind of a slave to other people. Like, even if you're a good person, even if you don't do bad things, there's just something inherently limiting about just kind of, you know, not letting yourself do something that's objectively harmless because of how other people are going to think about it. You know what I'm saying? And I think that, you know, unobserved, because it's oftentimes it's not even bad things, you know, sometimes it's easy for me at least to let that kind of run amok in my life. And so, yeah, I think that somehow in a weird therapy way <laughs> kind of transitioned into this period where when I was like 30 and I'm walking around and I would just go on these long walks where I would just like say hello to people. I would strike up conversations with people at coffee shops. And this was also that time period where I had like broken up with the last person I was dating at the time. And, you know, everybody that I would sort of, you know, have a romantic encounter with or a date or whatever, it was always proximity. You know, it was always people that I worked with or people that I, I met online or something like that. But I was never like a go up to somebody and talk to them or I was never a pickup guy. You know, I was never, if I went to a bar, you know, I would never like just walk up to a stranger and start talking to them, no matter how cute I thought they were. So I was also in this stage as a single person where I was going to bars all the time. I was going to bars every day. And, you know, <laughs> I was literally, not, not being a pickup artist per se, although that was certainly on the table, right? If I met someone and something happened, that's phenomenal. But it was really this exercise in, like, really tolerating putting myself out there and kind of literally practicing how to, like, have a cold conversation with people. And it wasn't just so that it went well, right? Like, you know, yeah, I met some people that year and it was a successful year for me in that regard, if you want to frame it that way. But the real point is that, you know, like the tennis ball, it was really tolerating when those conversations don't go well, just acknowledging for yourself that it actually probably has nothing to do with you and that it's, it's not that you did anything wrong. You know what I mean? Like it's totally okay to just like strike up, strike up a conversation with people. And if it doesn't go well, maybe it has more to do with them. Like maybe they're not up to your speed. Maybe they're not able to hold a conversation as well as you are. Maybe they're, you know, I don't know what it is, any number of things, but not taking responsibility for that stuff, you know? Like for some reason, I mean, this is tangential to dating, but I sort of also frame it in, during my time as a crisis counselor, which is when... Uh, you know, although I spent a lot of time on the crisis lines throughout my tenure as a crisis counselor, towards the end of my time, my, my um, although it was in, I was uh, uh, doing more and more of this anyway, in the last couple of years that I was there, my, my responsibilities were almost exclusively focused on training. And one of the things that a, a lot of new crisis counselors do is they can't tolerate silence. You know, they really take responsibility for the call at every stage. And so there's a way in which having a crisis line call is a bit like, you know, hear me, hear me closely now. It's a bit like, you know, uh, I don't know, striking up a conversation with a stranger at a bar, which is, is you have two people who are just thrown together by circumstances. And, uh, you know, you got to try to have this kind of organic conversation. And the reason I think it's semi-related is because it's kind of emotionally fraught. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about like the high crisis calls that you type of get. I'm talking about just, you know, the heightened emotion is is kind of the uh, arena of uh, dating or like picking people up at a bar. It's just the stakes are higher. Maybe that's the way to put it. The stakes are a little bit higher. So people are sitting with something, right? They're In a way, they're kind of hyper aware of themselves being judged. They're kind of hyper aware of how they're coming across. 
And so it's, again, it's not just like uh, talking to someone on a bus. Again, it's these sort of heightened stakes that I'm talking about. And when that happens, especially when someone has to assume a position of power, which is in a way what a crisis counselor is, or maybe a position of authority, which is in a way is something that a lot of guys who are picking people up try to do. They want to be flawless. They don't want to make mistakes. They don't want to stumble. They want to have everything prepared. It's going to be like the movies where they just kind of, you know, I don't know, woo somebody off their feet. They're just going to say all the clever stuff. There's a way in which people approach crisis counseling like that. And actually, wow, this is a really good connection. The plot twist of both or the secret of both is that's actually how you don't do it. Now, I'm not saying it never works, right? Like maybe there are people that that, that type of, uh, I don't know, calculated, performative, whatever thing is just their cup of tea. And if that works for you, that's great. But for the most part, when you assume that perspective, you're actually kind of selling the other person short. You're kind of underestimating the other person, which is actually what they're looking for. And actually, the thing that they're hyper attuned to, whether you realize it or not, is your genuineness. Because especially for like a girl who gets hit on all the time, and I'm, and by the way, I'm not trying to coach anyone up on how to pick people up. I'm just speaking from my own experience and my own uh, um, conjecture or maybe even assumptions. But you're hyper aware of people maybe trying to placate you or flatter you or something like that. And there's a way in which people who call a crisis line who are needing support, partly based out of their own, sometimes, frequently, their own insecurities about how they're feeling or the things that they're struggling with, how much they're going to reveal to you, they are sizing you up all the time. You know, because if you start to sound formulaic, if you start to sound patronizing or too scripted, they're not going to feel comfortable opening up to you. And uh, so what it really takes is not having all your ducks in a row and being coached up. It's about tolerating the moment, whatever happens. And I think that holds for like dates. I think it holds for like just trying to meet people and strike up a conversation at a bar or something like that, which is there's actually power in silence and in tolerating silence. You know, because if you're trying to meet someone at a bar and you can't tolerate silence because it will happen and you're just constantly reaching for something, that's going to signal to the other person that you're not comfortable, that you're not confident, you know, that you're kind of hyper attuned to how well you're, you're clocking your own performance all the time. And that sort of communicates um, insecurity to them. Whereas whether it's meeting someone at a bar or being on a date or being on a phone call with somebody who's needing emotional support, when the call reaches a natural silence, when you don't say anything and you just let it sit there, you actually communicate to that person that uh, a level of confidence that you just, you can't manufacture, you know? And as I'm here, again, I don't know how the hell we got here. I was talking about hot chick energy, talking about being nice to people. I was talking about changing the world. And now I'm talking about picking people up at bars and tolerating silence. I don't know what it is. I think the only thing I'm advocating for here is, uh, you know, not to go through life as kind of a, a Heidi Ho neighbor type of person. But I think, uh, you know, I don't know. I think the most confident thing that you can be is kind. Wow. Write that down. Kindness is confidence. You know what I mean? Like if you have the, like it's one thing when you watch the movies and it's always some angsty dude with his foot up against a wall with a bomber jacket with the collar pulled up and he's smoking a cigarette with a greased hair and he's looking all pensive and you know uh, people want to save him right you know what i'm saying that's one that's kind of james dean type of thing that's one thing 
But that's uh, that's insecurity. Like when you grow up, you realize that that is uh, insecurity run amok. That's that dude's doing cosplay every day, and women do the same thing. Like the real confidence is like, dude, do you remember pristine sneaker life? <laughs> do you remember that? In a way, this is actually perfect because it goes back to the tennis ball. Like there's this chasm between chasm chasm between adults and younger people and i know this especially well as an adult who returned to their education and spent the last four years with undergraduate kids is kids think that you're not cool right like as an adult i went to my undergraduate classes and there were plenty of people who were nice and i'm not saying that everybody just snubbed their noses at me but every once in a while you would encounter somebody who you could tell wanted nothing to do with you because you're the old guy in the class and you would catch a vibe sometimes you know, that these people think that you're not cool. But what they don't know is that I know that they're not cool. I've been their age. I know how insecure they are. All the stuff that they're doing that they think is cool is super lame. And they're actually going to look back on it and be embarrassed that they did it. But it's like when you're younger and you look at your dad and he's wearing his uh, pristine Nike sneakers and his braided belt and his khaki shorts and his polo that's tucked way the fuck in and his just got his socks pulled up to his knees you're like dude that's so lame but you know what that dude's comfortable and there's nothing cooler than comfort or you don't give a shit what what you look like what anybody else thinks it's like me bouncing that tennis ball people might look and go what the fuck is that bozo doing a bounce, bouncing a tennis ball on the sidewalk it's the same thing it's like yeah you think my braided belt is whack Dude, I'm so comfy right now. And these shoes, I can walk around all day and not feel a thing. I mean, do you know, for years, I wore, uh, I was going to say the Onitsuka Tigers are a classic shoe. I actually highly recommend them. Those were very comfortable. Those are very cool shoes. Onitsuka Tigers. I think I had like a, half a dozen pairs of those that I just like bought one after another. But also there was this like long period of my life and it's still mostly true, although I try to break out of it every, every once in a while. But black is like my color, right? That's like my, my, my uniform is usually all black. Um, and I, to sort of complement my, uh, my uniform, I would buy these Vans sneakers, or not even sneakers, but these van, all black Vans, which the, like the kind of low top shoes. You probably may even have a pair. You know what I'm talking about. But I went through like, you know, maybe half a dozen to a dozen pairs of these over many years. And every single one of them made my feet hurt. The side of my feet was constantly fucking hurting. Like I had real, and, and this is when I was walking more than ever. I never had more foot problems than when I was wearing those shoes. And yet, when I switched to buying Allbirds, those was the most comfortable shoe I'd ever had in my life. And that was like a turning point where I was like, oh, I don't have to be uncomfortable. I could just wear the shoe that's comfortable. And so now I do have like these kind of, I don't, they're not cool at all. Actually, I have these black sneakers and to me, they were just like fit the bill. They're sneakers. I'm getting older. I need the support. They're black. So they kind of fit with my uniform, but they're, they're what I need. And I had a moment where I realized, oh shit, man, I am getting old. I had a professor, I've had him for many semesters. He's, you know, going to write me a letter of recommendation. He's kind of a mentor of mine. I, I'm, um, you know, the type of person I'm going to stay in touch with and just very, very formative to have this person as a teacher. Um, but I remember he was lecturing one day and it was one of these lecture halls where it's it's like a theater, you know, so he's literally up on a stage and I'm like near the front and I sort of look and I realize he and I are wearing the, sh the same shoes 
And I was like, oh, shit. Either he's got really cool tastes or I'm moving toward that end of the continuum where I'm entering. I'm, I'm, I'm like both feet into that pristine sneaker life. And I think that's probably, given my age, given where I'm at in life, that's, that's probably closer. That's the, that's, the, that's the end of the spectrum I'm finding myself on. I'm, uh, I'm marching into that pristine sneaker life for sure. <clears throat> otherwise yeah I don't know I've just been watching a shit ton of movies um, recently I've been on this David Fincher kick <clears throat> I think I kind of got it or I sort of backed into it because I was thinking about the, mo the movie The Usual Suspects and I probably you know that's a movie I mean you know when people ask you what your favorite movies are it's always easy to reach for a movie that just was like really impactful. that had a very profound um, impact on you, but maybe you only saw it like once or twice. Like maybe it's a movie that you cried at or something like that. Um, you, and Usual Suspects, had a, I mean, it was a profound moment the first time I saw it. But it's like when I think of my favorite movies, it's movies that I've watched so many times. I can't even, one, I, I couldn't even put a number to it that's realistic. It's so easy to say like a hundred, but it's like, really? Have you really watched that movie a hundred times? No, you've probably watched it a dozen or two dozen or something like that. But it's like there's some movies that I've watched so many times, it's almost like a, a song where it's like I know the rhythm of the dialogue, I know every word that's coming, but it's more than that. You start to notice like weird production things like, oh, there's this moment coming up where I, I think it's called ADR, like, you know, in post-production where they have the actor like re-record the dialogue because either there was an error issue or they have to change a line or something like that. But it's like you notice all these imperfections or weird cuts or something. Like I just know every frame of that movie, it feels like, because I've seen it so many times. But I haven't watched it in, I mean, I mean, maybe 20 years, but probably more like 10 or 15. So I just sort of sat down and watched that. And then the next night, I was kind of, it made me kind of jones for like other movies that I knew very well. And so I watched Seven, which is another one of those movies that I think probably in recent years, I think it's gotten, I, I, I mean, I imagine it's getting the credit that is uh, due to it. But I remember, I may even have seen that movie in theaters, but I definitely was aware of it. I mean, I definitely saw it around the time it came out. And I remember that, I don't think that movie I mean, I don't know whether it was a box office success or not. I mean, this is also a movie that came out at a time period where movies were just very different. I mean, if you put Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt in a movie, you're going to make some of your money back. So I can't say that it was a bomb, but I don't, I don't, it was not, you know, thought of as like a serious film. I think it was just like a throwaway thriller that like came and went. Like if you think of another movie like Kiss the Girls or I'm trying to think of another kind of throwaway thriller. Uh, from the 90s um you know it was it was not you know a serious film and yet that was a movie that just as a kid I watched over and over and over again and it was just so formative for me creatively and I've always felt this but just watching it again after I think I looked back and I, I think I had seen it in the last couple of years but every time I watch that movie I'm just blown away by it's when I think of like art direction in a film um, I'm sure there's other ones that I could think of that are equally good, but the the sort of imprinting or 
you know, most formative film for me that I can think of that I would turn to as like a perfect example of art direction is Seven. It's one of the few movies that is just so fully realized in every way. I mean, it's very, it's economical with the screenplay, the, uh, you know, the cinematography and the color palette. It's just, I mean, it's, uh, and it's, it's actually, I think when you look into it and I, I think I only know this from like, um, you know, back in the day, kids, we used to have like DVD commentary or special features where you would kind of get these interesting insights into filmmaking. But when you watch that movie until the end, every single scene in that movie, it's raining. And that, uh, although it works out perfectly, I mean, the one thing, I mean, I, I could go in a lot of different directions, but, you know, all of the paint is peeling off the walls in that film. Everything is lit very, you know, with like, uh, uh, like, uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I think it's, do you call it practical lighting or is it, I can't remember, but you know, there's like no light. It's the darkest movie you've ever seen. There's like no lighting in that movie and every scene is raining, but I actually think that it was a complete, it was not a part of the plan for the movie. I think there was just happened to be rain during production and for the sake of continuity, I think David Fincher just said, fuck it. It's going to rain in every scene just because they couldn't, they couldn't go back and forth. Um, in fact, I actually, this is the first time I've noticed it, but there's actually a moment when they kind of first meet each other, maybe in their first car ride back to the precinct, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, where you can actually tell that they probably have some device hooked up to the vehicle where it's like just dumping buckets onto the vehicle that they're inside of. But you can, if you look at the people who are blurred out behind them, you can tell it's not raining outside because nobody's holding an umbrella. It's just, you know, you know, movie magic or whatever it is. Um... And it's actually kind of interesting. The entire movie, it rains every single scene. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to spoil the ending for you here. It rains every single scene until that final sort of uh, act that begins. They return to the precinct and Kevin Spacey shows up in the taxi cab. It's raining, raining, raining. And then it has the establishing shot where they're sort of walking toward the, the police thing. And it's just like gold, golden light. It's like yellow. Kevin Spacey gets out of the... Uh, taxi cab and you know he calls for the detective and he's like you're looking for me and he's got blood all over him and all that sort of shit then there's that whole sequence where they go out to it looks like the desert but it has to be near well actually i guess it doesn't have to be near anywhere actually this is interesting when when you watch that movie you just kind of assume that they're talking about new york city but I think that movie was actually shot in Los Angeles. And so as I think about it, I was like, oh, it looks like they go out to the desert. But now that I realize that that movie was actually, now that I think about it, yeah, if that movie was actually shot in LA, then it makes total sense that they're kind of in this desert area outside of LA. But that whole sequence is all golden light and all that sort of shit. So anyway, I'm not trying to give you a essay on Seven as much as I think it's a perfect art direction. But now I'm on this kind of David Fincher kick. So I watched Fight Club again last night, which... Again, I'm seeing we're almost out of time, so I can't, uh, you know, I don't know how much, I, I, I just, you know, look, it's New Year's Eve. I want to give myself permission to unplug. I'll probably work out and uh, um, eat some pizza or something. I mean, every, I don't, it, it's like Halloween. I don't know how many years in a row I've told myself I'm going to do something for Halloween. I'm going to do something for New Year's Eve, and I never do. I never do. I'm always up at midnight, but I'm usually like watching a movie or something like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll just sort of cut it off there. Just suffice it to say, you, you know, you've seen it. Fight Club is a perfect film. I can't think of a single movie that has more memorable lines than Fight Club. 
you know? And actually, when it first came out, I saw that movie in theaters with my mom. And we had no idea that it was like over two hours. And I think we had somewhere to be. But I remember seeing Fight Club in the theaters and we're watching it, we're watching it. And we finally get to that last scene. And like Edward Norton, like, again, spoiler alert, Edward Norton like shoots himself, right? And he happens to survive it. But I remember that happening. And me and my mom just kind of looking at each other and going, we have to get the fuck out of here. We got to be somewhere. So we left, not knowing how much of the movie that we missed. And I think I saw that movie like two or three times in theaters. But I remember going uh, with my brother and a group of other like guy friends. And we were not 18 at the time. We were much younger. We had to have been like 12 or 13, which is crazy when you think about it. But I remember we went with our friend. Uh, I almost said his name. It doesn't really matter. His, his name is, we'll call him B. But it was my brother, me, our friend B, and a couple other dudes. And uh, we must have snuck into it. We used to do this thing where like we would go and our mom would like buy us the, either our mom would buy us the tickets to the R-rated movie or we would buy the tickets for the non-R-rated movie and just walk into uh, Fight Club or whatever the fuck it was. And, uh, you know, I had already seen Fight Club, so I knew there was this twist where Brad Pitt and Edward Norton were the same person. And I don't know why I fucking did this, but I totally ruined the movie for my friend inadvertently, which is I, I, want, I let him know that there was this huge plot twist. And I remember... I was like, oh, it's just, you have to think about how they're related. And he was like, oh, okay. And I remember he just leans over to me in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. And he's like, they're the same person, huh? And I didn't want to say yes. I just like kind of swallowed my pride and said, and just pointed at the screen. I was like, yeah, keep watching. And I realized, God, that was so shitty. It was like, I wanted to demonstrate to my friend that I like knew something about the film or that I was like in on it somehow. I don't know how, I don't know how to word this except... It's like I I wanted to seem like I knew something. I had some kind of like arcane or esoteric knowledge and I ended up ruining the fucking movie for my friend. So I don't know if that's stuck in his head. I don't know if he goes, uh, when anybody mentions Fight Club, he's like, oh yeah, my friend fucking ruined that movie for me. Or maybe not. This is just the way that I crucify myself. Um, anyway, there you go. Your boy's back in action. Wisdom teeth pulled, four teeth less two degrees under his belt and uh, gearing up for Taiwan and maybe some time abroad after that. So um, I don't know. I'll keep watching movies. You keep doing you. Um, I don't know if you have any New Year's resolutions, but uh, if you do, I hope you're able to keep them. And, you know, 2023 was not awful for me. And, uh, you know, if it was for you, I hope next year is better. And if this year was good for you, I hope next year is 10 times as good. Um Thank you for accepting these communications and thank you for listening and I'll thank you for your time. Thanks for listening and ciao for now.